Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm your host, Ash Sarker, subbing in for Michael Walker, who will be returned to you alive and unharmed once my demands are met. My accomplice this evening is Aaron Bastani. Tonight, we'll be talking about a new suspect being identified in the murder of Stephen Lawrence, Labour's latest U-turn, and an update about furries in schools. Just to say that I know that the big news this weekend is about the Wagner Group's mutiny in Russia, and we will be covering it later in the week with expert input. So don't you worry, you'll be getting all of the big stuff in due course. On to our main story. The Met Police have announced a major new development in one of the UK's most notorious murder cases. In 1993, Stephen Lawrence was just 19 when he was stabbed to death in a racist attack. Lawrence was attacked in South London by a group of strangers, white teenage boys. The subsequent Met Police investigation into Lawrence's murder and the Met Police's failure to secure justice became a cultural and political flashpoint. This was a Daily Mail headline from 1997 after an inquest recorded a verdict of unlawful killing, labelling Gary Dobson, brothers Neil and Jamie Acourt, Luke Knight and David Norris, murderers. In 1998, a review was launched into the Met's handling of Lawrence's murder, the hostile treatment of his grieving family and the failure to prosecute any of the perpetrators. The McPherson report found the Met was, quote, institutionally racist. In 2012, two of the five men suspected to have killed Stephen were jailed. Gary Dobson and Stephen Norris received life sentences for their part in his death. It's long been suggested that six people, not just five, attacked Stephen. And today, a major BBC investigation has found evidence identifying the sixth man suspected of murdering Stephen Lawrence. The Met has confirmed that his name is Matthew White and that he died in 2021. BBC reporter Daniel De Simone writes this. I traced witnesses, saw police documents and uncovered new evidence that shows how officers mishandled investigations relating to White. The BBC has found that witnesses told detectives White had said he was present during the attack and has uncovered evidence that shows his alibi was false. For the first time, police surveillance photos from 1993 are published, in which White is depicted bearing a striking resemblance to eyewitness descriptions of the unidentified attacker. Previously, White had been treated as a witness who denied he was at the scene of the crime. But White was first flagged to police as being actually involved in the murder by Jack Severs, his stepfather, in 1993. But it took another 20 years before a police officer followed up on that line of inquiry, the BBC reports. Detective Chief Inspector Clive Driscoll located Jack Severs in 2013 and knocked on his door. Severs expressed surprise that it had taken two decades to be visited. You're rushing this job, Driscoll recalls him saying. What Severs disclosed was significant. He died in 2020, and to verify what he said, I gained access to a copy of his statement and interview. He said that days after the murder, he saw White in the street in Eltham. White admitted being present during the attack and said Stephen deserved it. Sever said White had shown no emotion and had behaved like it was an everyday occurrence. Another witness, named Witness Purple in the BBC report, named Matthew White as being involved in Stephen's murder. This again from that BBC report. Witness Purple said he had spoken to White soon after the murder and that White had told him, we've done some black kids up the road. Witness Purple said Matty had shouted something out to them. They'd shouted something back and that Matty ran over to give them a dig or something and everyone else ran over there and piled in. Matty went to put the boot in and then the others done him up like a kipper. White was quoted by Witness Purple, saying that Norris and Neil Acourt had started getting silly with a knife, stabbing and cutting him, him being Stephen Lawrence. This account tallies with what Duane Brooks, the friend who was with Stephen the night he died, told police had happened. According to the BBC, Matthew White was a drug user at the time of Stephen's murder. He spent the years between 1993 and 2001 in and out of prison and one of the last offences he was convicted of was an assault on a black shop worker just a few hundred metres from where Stephen Lawrence was murdered. According to the shop worker, the details of this assault are pretty horrific. This is from The Guardian. He told the BBC he confronted White, who was shoplifting after he came into the store. 
White then attacked him while making threatening comments loaded with references to Lawrence. The victim told the BBC that White had said, remember you're in Eltham, remember where you are, remember what happened to Stephen Lawrence. I can call my boys, they can come down and they can deal with you. He reportedly threatened that the victim would be Stephen Lawrence before launching his assault. Matthew White died in a bedsit not long after being convicted for this assault, and the BBC has reports which contain this detail. During the inquest, there was no overt mention of White's status in the Stephen Lawrence investigation, but the relative statement included a cryptic one-sentence summary of his life. Matthew was a lovely lad that happened to go to the wrong place at the wrong time. In the wake of that BBC investigation, Met Police Deputy Assistant Commissioner Matt Ward issued yet another apology. The impact of the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence and attack on Dwayne Brooks and subsequent inquiries continues to be felt throughout policing. Unfortunately, too many mistakes were made in the initial investigation and the impact of them continues to be seen. On the 30th anniversary of Stephen's murder, Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley apologised for our failings and I repeat that apology today. Just to speak on this a little bit personally, I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s. I was born in 1992, the year before Stephen's murder. And the impact that the murder of Stephen Lawrence and what everyone knew to be a bungled and corrupt police investigation, it had a massive impact on the lives of people of colour right here in London. There were places that my mum just told me straight up not to go to, ever, like Eltham. There were certain groups of people that she told me to stay away from. And that wasn't simply because she thought that I could come to harm in those places, though of course that was part of her reasoning. It was also the idea that should any harm come to me, in those places or being perpetrated by groups like Dobson and the A-Courts, um, that you would be denied justice, that they would essentially get away with it. And as well to find out the kind of monitoring and surveillance that had uh, been done to the Lawrence family, I think it was just truly unforgivable. When you've had a police force that have supposedly been dedicated to to find in, to bring in justice to, to Stephen and his family for, for over 30 years. Why, did, why does it take in a journalist to do this? And to do this only a couple of, yeah, a couple of years after the culprit's actually dead. Um, it, it points to all the, all the things that the McPherson report said, you know, 24 years ago about, about institutional uh, problems with the police force and incompetencies and corruption they're they're all they're all highlighted in exactly this case. It's 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 almost like a, a um, it's almost ironically tragic that that um, it, that two years after this sixth suspect dies, suddenly the police are sort of able to to name him because of work by someone else. It kind of sums up you know the bungling that's gone on right throughout this 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 case. I'm afraid, Ash. So how did the Met Police handle Matthew White's involvement in this case back in the 1990s and 2010s? How did we get to this point of him being identified as a suspect? They handled it badly, like they handled everything, to be honest. Um, as, as I think you said earlier, members of his family came forward, you know, days after the murder and, and sort of said, uh, you know, and, 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 and suggested that the police look at him and that was lost. Um, yeah, he was he was you know brought to their attention by lots of people. But you know, as as with a lot in this case, because of the police's focus was somewhere else. At the first it was focusing on Stephen and why was he there and what was he up to? Was he involved in some sort of drugs? All that sort of nonsense that they wasted the initial time with. And then after that, a lot of their time was spent trying to cover up the bungles that they'd made earlier. So um, I guess it's no surprise. I mean, this this guy was walking around, you know, boasting about his involvement and threatening people with with doing doing the same. He managed to live out the rest of his life without ever being brought to justice for this. Um, yeah, the, the police should be hanging their heads in shame, really. Quite naturally, the mother of Stephen Lawrence, Baroness Doreen Lawrence, has responded. She said that it's infuriating that this man had evaded justice and that nobody involved on the police side has faced or will face action. And she's calling for the officers involved to be sacked. Do you think that that's enough? Well, it's certainly not enough. But it's, 
it's the bare minimum though i can i can completely understand why that's what um, baroness lawrence is calling for you know she's tirelessly and proudly fought for justice all this time and and all the things that have been proven all the evidence that's been laid out and not a single officer has has been held to account for doing anything wrong so absolutely i understand why she wants anyone who's still serving to be sacked but we need to get away from just thinking about the individuals that's not enough to fix that's not a leg the legacy that we should be trying to leave for Stephen. it's it's properly acknowledging the institutional nature of the problems and tackling those so so yes we need to pick out those those bad apples because that that is part of changing the culture that's part of saying that you will be held accountable for what you do but it's certainly not the whole the whole fight I just want to ask a personal question because while we were trying to get you back, I was talking about the way in which Stephen Lawrence's murder, it loomed very, very large in my own upbringing. And I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that for many people of color up and down this country, it was nothing short of traumatic, that not only was there a horrific racist murder, these men went nearly 20 years without any kind of real accountability. Um, If I may ask, did Stephen Lawrence's murder, in particular those years between 1993 and 2012, where you got those first criminal convictions, did that impact you personally in any way? Yeah, massively, absolutely massively. I mean, I guess with me, it was magnified by the fact of, you know, at that point I went into journalism. I was, uh, while the McPherson report came out, I was political editor on The Voice. So I was, you know, I was involved on a, on a, on a professional level and looking at the you know what was going on and, and and sort of seeing under the under the hood but as a as a human as a as a black young man who was four three four years younger than Stephen what you know when that happened I always um as much as there were you know risks going around and some people would shout something I felt quite safe in South London I felt quite safe in London and to hear about what happened to to Stephen um, and Wayne, and hear what happened to them, and and then to see that no justice was anywhere. And it was like you thought, okay, this awful things happened, but at least God, these guys are going to be arrested, and justice will will come through. And to to see none of that, um, it really sort of showed you where you were in the establishment. It really showed you how I think how society thought of you. I mean, it must be something similar to how people in Merseyside felt about Hillsborough and how that was dealt with. It felt you feel like you really don't care about us, do you? That, that's, how, that's how it was for me personally. I think that's a very good point that you've made there, which is these moments, they are horrifying because of the initial tragedy. And then there is this other layer of trauma that comes from every institution of power and justice in this society, basically letting you know that you are a second-class citizen, that your life, your human life, is not worth as much as other people's. And that can be on the basis of race, as it very much was in the murder of Stephen Lawrence and in the case of Hillsborough, that seemed to be along the lines of class. Let's move on to our next story. The lady may not have been for turning, but the Labour Party loves it. Every time Starmer's party makes a policy announcement, it's only a matter of time before they go back on it. Some of those 180s happen at breakneck speed, like this one. Labour ditches £3 billion tax on big tech amid fear of US retaliation. As recently as April, Labour pledged it would raise the digital services tax from 2% to 10%. That's a tax on the revenues generated by the largely American corporations running social media sites, search engines, and online marketplaces. So we're talking Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Amazon, as well as others. Labour reckoned that the increase in the tax would raise around £3.2 billion. The party planned to use that windfall to reduce small business rates, ploughing the money back into smaller high street shops and businesses. But no more. The Times reports this. The idea has been ditched after warnings that it might provoke retaliatory trade sanctions from the Biden administration. It is the second recent change in Labour's economic policy as the party tries to election-proof its plans in the face of Tory attacks. Two weeks ago, Reeves reduced the scope of a proposed £28 billion a year Green Prosperity Fund. The move to scrap the tax follows industry concerns that it could breach the terms of an international deal struck less than two years ago to reform the way in which digital services are taxed. 
This committed the government not to increase the digital services tax beyond its current rate before a wider agreement on the taxation of multinational companies came into force. Backing down the minute America pipes up, that's not very love actually, is it, Keir? The US has long seen the digital services tax as unfairly targeting American companies, and Washington has previously warned that they would impose trade tariffs of up to 25% on UK exports in order to claim back any money raised by the tax. Labour now says they won't implement the tax rise, but they also deny that it's a U-turn. A spokesperson told The Times this. Our position on the digital services tax referred to the years of 2022-2023 and 2023-2024 and was a temporary measure entirely within the rules of the international agreement that we would be doing in that time to cut business rates and help our struggling high streets. In government, Labour have said that we will scrap business rates and replace it with a fairer, more modern system that shifts the burden away from the high streets and more onto online giants. We've said that we will set out more details on this ahead of the next election. So it's not a U-turn, but only because it was a policy that would apply before the next general election. So before Labour could even take power. Also U-turn adjacent was shadow leader of the Commons Thangham Debonair in an interview with the I newspaper. The interview led with this headline. Labour plans to abolish House of Lords would take back seat as we fix the country, says Thangham Debonair. Way back in the mists of time, otherwise known as December last year, the party made a series of constitutional promises, leading to headlines like these. Labour unveils plan to overhaul constitution and replace the Lords. The pledges were based on recommendations made by former Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown. It contained a lot of proposals for devolving powers to the regions, but at its centre was a bold and almost radical suggestion abolishing the House of Lords, an unelected second chamber, and replacing it with an elected, quote, Assembly of Nations and Rights. Also in December, Labour leader Keir Starmer appeared to want to move fast. This is what he told Sky's Kay Burley. The discussion we'll now have is how do we implement, when do we implement? House of Lords is obviously important, but the central thrust of this is... well, look, uh, as I say, there's now a discussion about when we're going to implement. Do I you certainly, hope it's when in I the asked for the term. report? Yes, I do, because when I asked when I asked Gordon Brown to set up the commission and do this, I said what I want is recommendations that are capable of being implemented in the first term. Well, that plan appears to be in the long grass now. At least that's according to Debonair, who's responsible for coordinating Labour's legislative agenda. She told the iPaper this. Constitutional legislation takes time and it drains energy. We've got a lot to do to fix a country when nothing works from getting a passport to fixing potholes. I do think the constitutional stuff, which will need to happen early on, is devolution because one of the ways we are going to deal with some of those problems is by devolving power to people who know what's going on and have skin in the game. I think the easiest thing on which there is the most consensus among the public and probably even their lordships is that the hereditary principle is unsustainable. To be honest, I would prefer we got on with the concrete business of trying to repair the country first. But Keir is committed to constitutional reform. It's very much his thing. He's back to what Gordon has said. And that is what we will do. But whether that comes in the first year, the second year, I don't know at the moment. As the Labour Party prepares for the next election and potentially for government, it's not only ditching policies. It's also, according to The Sun anyway, ditching some of its shadow cabinet. In an article entirely based on unnamed Labour sources, so do take it with a grain of salt, The Sun reports that Starmer wants to sideline Ed Miliband. The Shadow Climate Change Secretary isn't likely to lose his role, but the sources report that Starmer wants to rein Miliband in. The article goes on to say this. So Keir is considering making it clear that Miliband will not be deciding the party's energy policy amid a backlash over his plans. Earlier this month, Mr Miliband's flagship plan to splurge £28 billion on on green projects a year if Labour is elected was massively watered down. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeve said she would not be reckless with public cash and will gradually ramp up spending over several years. Shortly afterwards, Labour faced a massive backlash after Ed's plan to ban new oil and gas drilling in the North Sea hit the headlines. Critics said it would leave Britain dependent on foreign countries for energy. Sir Keir was forced to clarify that Labour does not oppose new drilling licences. 
ensuring supplies keep running. The Sun also reports that Lisa Nandy and David Lammy may be in for the chop too. But as I say, take it with a hefty pinch of salt. Private Eye's Solomon Hughes pointed this out on social media. The Sun predicting Ed Miliband and Lisa Nandy and David Lammy will get sidelined in a Starmer reshuffle isn't reporting. It is labour rights sources conspiring with Murdoch to try and make this happen. Starmer may be happy to be bounced into excluding remains of the soft left. Aaron, just to begin with, how many promises can Labour abandon before it starts becoming a problem for them in the polls? Well, that's a, that's a very important question, but one I think that nobody can answer. Um, because right now, Labour's massive lead, and it is massive. Right now, they're on, they're on, I think they're on course to get a bigger majority than 1997. is overwhelmingly due to a collapse in the polls for the Conservative Party, infighting within the government that we've not even seen, I think, You'd have to go before 1992, frankly. I think people like to p- point to the post-major win in 1992 and what ensues the 18 months after that, where the Tory party just collapses. I think this is far beyond that. I think the shenanigans with Boris Johnson, a former, former prime minister, the nature of his exit, the nature of his departure from politics altogether, all of this is totally unprecedented. So Labour's lead is very healthy, very large, but it's primarily not because of their own doing. Now, that's not to knock Keir Starmer, because he's done something which, you know, realistically, Corbyn and Ed Miliband couldn't do, which is to mitigate political attacks on himself. People like myself or yourself might argue, well, that's because he's basically adopted no political positions. But regardless, that is what has happened. In terms of the sort of the deeper lying story here of of will Labour actually implement anything? You know, I find those stories quite remarkable, the things you were just sort of going on there. And I, I, I made some notes. So, you know, Thangam Debonair is being tasked with overseeing Labour's legislative, legislative agenda. Her only job that I can understand outside of politics is working at an NGO. And, and she's going to oversee a legislative agenda. Now, I raise that because when Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell were at the top of the Labour Party, apparently they didn't have the policy chops. They didn't have the know-how. They didn't have the skills. They didn't have the, the contact. They weren't on contacts. They weren't on top of the detail to deliver a transformational political agenda. Yet Thangam Debonair, who prior to politics was a, was a professional cellist, she was a musician, good for her, although I, I'm not sure how much that helps one implement a, a political uh, uh, manifesto for a new party of government. And like I say, she works at an NGO as well. And of course, Thangam Debonair is the person who, when she was um, the recipient of a tweet which told her to get in the sea, she believed it was a literal threat on her life. So I think that probably does tell you something quite significant about the lack of seriousness from Labour, about both their agenda and their desire to implement it. Finally, on on the Lords reform, you know, they're not going to touch the Lords because they're going to need to create 50 to 100 new peers to get their legislation through. So Keir Starmer is presented with a real problem, even if he wants to scrap the Lords. In order to make the passage of legislation as easy as possible, after forming a government at Westminster, because Labour just don't have many lords, it certainly wouldn't reflect the kind of majority they have in the House of Commons, he'll have to create lots of new lords. Right now, the most lords ever created was by Tony Blair in the late 1990s, then David Cameron after 2010. Keir Starmer's going to probably have to blow both of those out of the water. He's probably going to have to create 50 to 100 peers. Now, it's very hard to say, I will create 100 new peers. The second chamber will, be, second chamber will have a, you know, a, uh, it will be con- constituted by around a thousand people, and I plan to scrap it. I mean, I I think you have to sort of put your sensible head on and think that's not really that's not plausible, isn't it? I, yeah, average sort of person in the street, if you said, "Well, this gentleman wants to scrap this elected, uh, this unelected legislature, but he's also just appointed a hundred people to it," they'd, they'd say those those two things seem kind of incommensurate. Then finally, on the uh, the devolution thing, we're going to give power to people. They love saying this. What it means is that they create they can create jobs for their Dogs' bodies. They're bag carriers. Keir's favourite here, or Peter Mandelson's favourite there, will basically be given a, 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 a job. And we've already seen this in, uh, in Teesside, where you had Jamie Driscoll effectively deselected by the Central Party. They blocked him from going on a shortlist. Uh, and he's going to be replaced, it seems, by uh, Kim McGuinness, who is a favourite of the Labour right up in, the, up in the northeast. So what's happened there is that we're told it's local democracy devolution, but frankly, it's just uh, it's a performative exercise so that the favourite candidate of the Westminster Party can have a full-time job. And we see this with regards to mayors. We saw it with um, with uh, Dan Jarvis, I believe, in the in the west of England. Not Dan Jarvis, Dan Norris, rather. 
And, you know, we, we see it with police and crime commissioners. So what the Tories and Labour both love to do is to create these new nonsense positions, which when it comes to police and crime commissioners, for instance, actually don't have any powers because it just allows more jobs, more pay for our permanent political class to mushroom itself, right? I will give you this thing. I'll give you this job if you support me in the future. It's obviously a very bad way to run a political system. It's not especially democratic. But it's very useful if you're trying to consolidate uh, political power in an organization. So I'm sure they will pursue the creation of more mayors, how much power they have, and whether or not they're actually chosen by local people. Well, that's another matter. Well, precisely. Sadiq Khan is asking to be given the power to impose rent controls in London and Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership as a whole are keeping doom on whether that will happen. In fact, they've said we're going to have some consultation, but kicking it yeah. down the road in a very big way. Um, just a very, very quick yes or no speculative question. Do you reckon that Ed Miliband's days in the shadow cabinet are numbered? Well, that Sun article that you uh, you highlighted a moment ago, that is, and it's yes and no, but I'll say that is briefing by the Labour right. They want him to go. And I think the problem for Ed Miliband is that the interests of the Labour right are aligned with the likes of Rupert Murdoch. They smashed the Labour left between them. Now they're going after the soft left. So if I was a betting man, I think he won't last very long in a Keir Starmer cabinet. Then again, people sometimes get lucky. They sometimes make the right move at the right time. And he may survive, but I suspect not. If you've got a little black book, Ed, I advise you would start filling it with salacious details now. At Navarra Media, we are powered by all of you. So if you want to support us, then the link to go to is navarramedia.com slash support. And we would love it if you could donate one hour's worth of your wage per month or whatever it is you can afford. We honestly just appreciate anything. That link is in the description below. Let's move on to our next story. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has given a wide-ranging interview to the BBC's Laura Koonsberg. At least it was supposed to be wide-ranging. Koonsberg tackled a range of topics, Russia, the NHS and the economy. Yet, somehow, Sunak managed to avoid saying anything. I guess that's kind of a talent. It came before the publication of the government's new NHS workforce plan. That's their plan in the long term to increase the recruitment of new doctors, nurses and other workers into the struggling health service. But Koonsberg also pressed Sunak on the short term, specifically on waiting lists. That's when this happened. I'm Prime Minister that wants to make a difference today, and that's why cutting waiting lists is one of my five priorities, and people can already see that difference. Last year, we practically eliminated the number of people waiting two years for treatment. Recently, we've virtually eliminated the number of people waiting one and a half years. If you look at ambulance response times, A&E waiting times, they've improved considerably well, on, from Christmas well, well, when, on, when they were particularly you challenging. Can, you, you, but you're right, it's but, also on, we take the long-term decisions Minister, for the years into the future. You say that what you're doing on waiting lists is already working. In actual fact, the overall number of people waiting is the highest that it has ever been. Targets on routine waiting lists have been missed. Targets on cancer care have been missed. You can pick some selective statistics, but overall, the experience that people are having on waiting lists is dreadful in many cases. Uh, it's because we've had a pandemic, Laura, and the backlog that that ensued was always going to take some time to work through. I was Many clear waiting about lists that. were going in the I, wrong direction well before well, the pandemic. I, I, I've been here for just over six months, and in that time, we've practically eliminated, as I said last year, the number of people waiting two years for treatment. We've just recently practically eliminated the number of people waiting one and a half years. And you've seen an enormous improvement in A&E and ambulance waiting but times. January, since, the since they were since they were particularly bad. Yes, that's right. And it will take time for the overall 7.4. it will take time for the overall waiting list to come down because as we've recovered from COVID and people have come back, it was always going to take time. But what I can tell you is that because of our record investment today, because of the plans that we've got in place, we are seeing that waiting lists are coming down for individual people. But it matters, and, and, but it, but, and, but forgive and, me. Well, hang on, this is really important. And I've always said the overall waiting list was not going to come down until next year. That was always the case. But between now and then, we can start to eliminate the number of people waiting a very long time. But, and then we are making progress on that. But it sounds a little bit like you're wanting us to believe in some kind of parallel universe. So you say again and again, we are cutting waiting lists, except you've just then admitted that the overall waiting list isn't coming down. Isn't it important actually to say, and to admit that overall waiting lists remain an enormous problem and people's experience doesn't match up with you saying repeatedly 
that waiting lists are coming down? Because they're not in many cases. Uh, that's literally what I said in January, Laura. When I gave my speech about the five priorities, cutting waiting lists is rightly on there because it is a priority for the country because the waiting lists are too high. People are waiting too long. That's why it's one of my five priorities. And I was very clear then about what our timetable was to improve things. And we're delivering against that timetable. Very confusing stuff. Waiting lists are coming down, even though there are more people waiting for treatment now than there have ever been. And is Sunak even right about cancer treatment? Absolutely not. I'm going to show you some information about cancer treatment targets from Cancer Research UK. April is the last month we have figures for, and the data is about England. The government's first target is that 93% of people should see a specialist within two weeks of a suspected cancer referral by their GP. In April, only 77% of referrals met that target. That's the seventh worst performance on record. The second target is that 75% of patients should have cancer diagnosed or ruled out within 28 days. In April, it was only 71%. In February, that target was actually met, but it was the only time it has been met since its introduction in 2021. The third target is that 85% of people should have received a diagnosis and begun treatment within two months of their urgent referral. In April, only 61% of people were being treated within that time frame. In January, it was a record low, so there's been some improvement, but the target hasn't been met since 2015. The final target is that 96% of people should start treatment within 31 days of doctors deciding a treatment plan. In April, it was just 90%. That's the third worst performance on record. You have to do a lot of squinting to make that look like improvement. The next topic was interest rates, which now stand at 5%, pushing up mortgages and in turn rents. A lot of people are going to find things very difficult in the coming months. Was that something Sunak could concede? Do you admit that it will be painful for many, many people? Of course I know that it's a challenging time. And that's why two years ago, I started talking about the danger of inflation. And that's why earlier this year, when I set out my five priorities, what's the first of those? To halve inflation. I'm asking but let's... you a different question, though, Prime Minister. And it might be hard to say to people, but I think people look to their Prime Minister for candour and to tell them hard things. Do you admit that there's going to be a lot of financial pain for many, many people? And is it worth it in order to get inflation down? In inflation, Laura, is the thing that causes people financial pain. Inflation is the enemy. Why? Because inflation eats the pound in your pocket. It makes your paycheck go less far. It eats into your savings. It pushes up prices. It puts at risk jobs and livelihoods. Inflation is the enemy that we need to but conquer. That's why... interest rates going up are also well, well, an enemy for many people well, in, in, watching in, in, this. So in, in, interest, rates, interest rates are a, are a consequence of high inflation. Mm -hmm. And I think we should be very clear about what is doing damage to people, mm -hmm. what is causing people challenges in their day-to-day -day living and their budgeting is inflation. And, and it's inflation that needs too. to be the priority for the government to stamp out. And I'm prepared to do that. And again, that's why it's my number one priority so people can have some confidence in it. But also, I was one of the first politicians to start talking but about you, the dangers of inflation. That, so you are prepared to see rates continue to rise in order to squeeze inflation. That's what you're saying. But do you admit that that is going to hurt for a lot of people. We're inundated with emails saying their mortgage is going to double. We're inundated with people saying that they can't afford their rent. We're inundated with emails from people, from people saying they're just not going to be able to afford it on top of everything else that's gone up. Now, it might be the right thing to do. You said you're prepared to see it, but do you admit it's going to hurt? So, first of all, with interest rates, yes, they're going up in the UK, and I fully support the Bank of England in their actions. They're also going up in almost all other countries. If you look at interest rates in Australia, in America, in Canada, in New Zealand, all very similar rates to here in the UK. Rates in Europe at the highest they've been for 20 years. So we're not alone in facing this challenge. Central banks across the world are taking very similar but action. But do you think that's but, a comfort for but, people? So, but let me that talk. sounds a bit like you're, you're No, but you're I'm putting it in context. But Well, no, I'm putting it in context. It's important, actually. You talked about me as Prime Minister. Part of my job is to explain to people what is happening with the economy, the context that we're in. It's, it's right for people to know that's the global macroeconomic context. Interest rates in the EU and the US may be high, but they're not struggling with the kind of stubborn, acute inflation that we are. 
In the US, interest rates are around 5%, but inflation is only at 4.9% and core inflation is at 5.3%. Compare that to our 8.7% rate of inflation and still rising 7.1% core inflation rate. In Europe, inflation also has been coming down. It's currently at 5.7% with core inflation at 5.5%. And their interest rate relevant to mortgage holders is only 4%. So that was Sunak claiming to be giving us the geopolitical context without actually giving us the geopolitical context. After all that evasion, it was only natural for Koonsberg to turn to the questions of Sunak's integrity. A clear verdict was given by the House of Commons that your former boss, Boris Johnson, lied to Parliament. Now, you haven't given a view on whether or not you agree with that verdict. So do you agree with that verdict? You've just said that you want to be honest and you want to show leadership. So do you agree? Yes, I've already said, in fact, that I do fully support and respect not just the work of the committee, who I think did a very thorough job, but also the decision of the House. It's right that That's people... That's not my question. No, no, do but hang on, let me, let me, let me finish, because I think this is important. I do think it's right that people, whatever their position, face responsibility and accountability for their actions. That has happened. And most importantly, Boris Johnson is no longer an MP. Now, you asked me about my view on this, right, and standing up for things, being honest. I was a person that, as Chancellor, resigned from Boris Johnson's government. That is no, you know this better than most because you follow politics you for a long time. But you didn't to vote in the Commons. Because, to, to well, I didn't because I was actually speaking and attending an event at a fantastic charity called Jewish Care, which does an extraordinary job looking after people around the country. And you could have gotten country. your prime ministerial car and gone back to the House well, of Commons well, or, 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 and Or, or I could have you fulfilled could have. my commitment to these people who were doing an extraordinary job and support their charity and their fundraising efforts, which I had committed to do. But, but Laura, your point is, do I have to demonstrate my integrity or my leadership? I did that when I resigned. I demonstrated that I was prepared to stand up for what I believe in. You know this, as I said, better than most. You followed politics for a very long time. It is not an easy or common thing for a chancellor to resign from government. I did because I disagreed with Boris Johnson's approach. Did you hear that? I resigned because I disagreed with Boris Johnson's approach. Prof, you resigned because it emerged that Johnson had knowingly appointed a sex pest to the government. You left only when it became completely untenable to stay without ruining your own reputation. Johnson's approach that you disagreed with so much, you served in his government for three years, two and a half of them as chancellor. Now, that interview was exasperating. It was so exasperating that one of the panellists on the show, writer Ben Elton, reacted like this. Ben, you were looking distinctly unimpressed throughout that interview. Fair to say, I think you've never been a fan of the Conservatives, but what did you think of what Mr Sunak said? Uh, it's not so much depressed as sad. I mean, if anybody was still watching after that extraordinary Orwellian, meaningless, evasive word salad... I mean, I sort of, everybody else wanted to believe, and I sort of believe maybe he's kind of a bit more decent, you know, and it turns out he's as much of a mendacious, narcissistic sociopath as his previous boss. I mean, this man literally, he seems to be making a principle of the fact that he resigned from a government that he'd served loyally and tried to keep propped up for numerous years. He's trying to boast about having worried about inflation while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer under Johnson. Uh, he seems to act as being born into Downing Street six months ago was a, was a miracle birth. No, he was a part of a 13-year cycle, which has got us to this point. He talks about foreign uh, other countries having the same problems. He doesn't admit what he well knows, which is that they're all doing better under them. The evasion, the, the constant repetition of a repaired street. I genuinely wanted to believe that maybe the Tories had made a reset, even though they had elected a man who had loyally served under Johnson, a man who made a mockery of a parliamentary democracy uh, and clearly was, was a, 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 a venally motivated by self-interest. The fact that the Tories chose that easy option, for a man now to say, we don't take easy options, when they took the easy option, which was Johnson, because they thought it would keep them in power, and when they thought for a moment he wouldn't, they dumped him instantly. I mean, uh, he's the Prime Minister. He, he owes us honesty, and we got nothing but mendacity, evasion, and vanity, just dripping with vanity. Aaron, what do you reckon? Does Rishi Sunak strike you as a man of unbearable ego? Well, I don't know him. I mean, he doesn't come across as a narcissist, put it that way. I think he has a grip on reality, which wasn't the case for Liz Truss or Boris Johnson. Is that really 
saying very much about the content of his character, not really. But I wouldn't say it's the first the first thing I hear or you know see when he's on television or, or, or on the radio. I do get the feeling that if Rishi Sunak had been a Tory politician, even in the mid 2000s, in the 1990s, I think he would have been perfectly fine. He's you know perfectly uh, decent you know public speaker when he's got you know the lines in front of him and the auto cue, less off the cuff. Uh, he's seemingly okay problem solver. Um, his personality is is pretty good for politics. He can he can control his impulses in a better way than uh, his his predecessor, but one most certainly Boris Johnson. So that's not the first thing that comes to mind. I think really the problem for Sunak is the objective conditions he now faces. You know, he has inherited an absolute shit show economically, socially, but also politically within his own party. You, you really can't overstate the impact of COVID on the NHS. That's absolutely true. I think any, any politician or political leader of any strike would be struggling right now to provide the service that people became accustomed to, even in the mid-2010s, let alone what we expect to afford that before austerity, you know, by the late 2000s and, and as recently as 2010 before the general election there. I think that's fair. At the same time, you've got this, this global economic meltdown, um, which happens with COVID, but also I think has been a real problem for Europe in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Britain's, like I say, core inflation is going up. Food inflation is 20%. Uh, but there are other countries really struggling too. You know, Poland, I think, has an inflation rate of about 14%. Lithuania, Latvia, similar. Germany, just slightly below us. Uh, the United States is a different kettle of fish because they're their own energy producer. They have a very different geography to Europe when it comes to energy production and, and food production. They're, 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 they're much less exposed to global trends on this stuff. So that, those are very real problems, which I think any government, any prime minister would have struggled with. Then at the same time, he's got this internal political collapse within his own party, within his own broader coalition, partly because, of course, the, the, the major thing that got the, uh, the Tory party a majority in 2019 is Brexit. And the promises around that, that it would be both transformational, but not disruptive. It would be life-changing, but also relatively easy and smooth. Clearly, there's a contradiction there, and that's what we're now seeing. And while Brexit isn't to blame for uh, you know, inflation, that's not the reason why we have the inflation that we do, despite what Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, says, it is probably responsible for a couple of percent, most certainly. And we know it's feeding into higher wages in certain industries like HGV drivers, welders, supermarket workers, because of a, a lack of staff in those industries. So it's a, it's a really, really interesting one. I, I think you can have a supremely talented politician right now leading the Conservative Party. And I think regardless, they would be really screwed. So focusing on Sunak as the problem here, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think right now the electorate is much warmer to Sunak than they are to the Conservative Party, but I suspect that won't be enough for them at the next general election. I tend to agree with you. I don't think that Rishi Sunak is a stark, raving narcissist in the mould of Boris Johnson, or indeed Liz Truss, whose you know, supersized ego uh, managed to crash the pound. He seems like someone who is trying his, hard, his hardest to come across as likeable and tough. And underneath it all, he's kind of a bit of a scared child going off to school for the first time or something. Um, and I think he's outperforming the Conservatives' polling performance. But he is, I think, totally wrong. And there is deceit in trying to distance himself from the work of the Johnson administration, of which he was gladly uh, one of the most senior members. Now, Ben Elton's comments on Koonsberg's show have gotten the Tories in a bit of a twist. Tory MP Paul Bristow said this to The Telegraph. Quite why the BBC thinks it's relevant to broadcast to the nation what Ben Elton thinks is beyond me. He is part of the same North London champagne socialist clique that appear periodically to espouse their left-wing and anti-Brexit credentials to a bored country. They have about as much in common with working people as a £12.50 avocado on toast breakfast. Why is it always avocado on toast? And a second, unnamed Tory detected this plot at the BBC. It's a conscious decision by BBC producers to invite anti-conservative people from the arts world to make personal insults about Tories. It's all packaged up afterwards and then pushed out on social media. Licensed fee payers want to see guests who can provide actual analysis on important issues, not just throw around petty personal jibes. It's not surprising that viewers are switching off. 
Aaron, these are supposed to be free speech loving Tories. What happened to them? The passion for free speech really uh, vacates the building quicker than Elvis Presley in 1971 as soon as they hear somebody they disagree with. I mean, we found this out the hard way, Ash, by being those people. It really is remarkable. And I think it shows how there is you know, a veneer thickness to their sense of political self-esteem and fundamentally a belief in their own political project. And you've seen this with Glastonbury in the last few days. You know, 200,000 people go to Glastonbury. They go to watch Elton John, you know, iconic performer, one of Britain's greatest living artists, loved by millions around the world. People are just having a nice time. And yet you've got people like Lee Anderson, the, you know, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, talking about how it looks like Israel and, you know, uh, how it's got... Israel-style border security. I, I thought you liked that stuff, but park that for a moment. Uh, it, it, it's just very, very strange. You know, they really hate people who disagree with them. They really hate it. Uh, and this is something they, they, they claim the left do. You know, the left can't do debate, it can't do dissent, it can't do disagreement. I think there's a little bit to that. I think there's a, there's a part of the, our zeitgeist right now where people can't do that. But the absolute worst people on this are conservatives. They just cannot stomach the idea of people being different to them. And, and there's something true to the, to the claim that people in the arts are more progressive, more left-wing, probably than the country at large. That's very, I think that's very fair. But clearly that's counterbalanced on the BBC constantly. It's not like Ben Elton is going on BBC Question Time and This Week and The Daily Politics, all these names have changed now, Politics Live rather, all the time. I, I don't think I've seen Ben Elton comment on politics publicly since 2015. I, I might be wrong. And yet you have Nigel Farage on BBC Question Time more than anybody else. You have people like Isabel Oakeshott and Julia Hartley Brewer. They might as well be squatting in BBC studios. So, so this idea that there is a, uh, a set of pundits on the BBC who are left wing and uh, somehow, you know, they're, they're there far more than they should be. And that the, the, the right and, and social conservatives have been driven out of public debate on the public service broadcast, that it's complete nonsense and fantasy. I mean, watch BBC Question Time every week going back for years. You'll always find a couple of people on the right, a couple of people on the left, centre-left, and the, the outrider, the person who will make the zaniest, most crazy arguments, nine times out of ten, it'll be somebody on the right. And, and the other time will probably be Ash Sarkar, you know, going the other way. But the modus operandi is the person who's not associated with any party, the person who's not you know, providing the formulaic pedestrian answers as usual, that person's on the right. There's dozens of people who've made a living out of that in this country, Ash. So I, I find it pathetic and ridiculous. And frankly, I think the people saying these things, they don't believe it. This is a political maneuver. It's a way of silencing the left, and it's a way of creating a cordon sanitaire. You don't go beyond a certain place when it comes to criticizing the right. If you do, you're a marked person. Let's move on to our final story. You should never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Last week, we reported on the epidemic of cat children plaguing the nation's schools. This was in the Daily Mail. Children identifying as cats are wearing tails and ears in class, warns Britain's toughest head teacher as she cautions that teachers' authority over their pupils is long gone amid rise of the furries. So in case that's leaving you a little confused, this is in reference to Britain's strictest head teacher and full-time culture wars headbanger Catherine Burblesing alleging that kids are dressing up as cats and demanding that teachers respect and affirm their fursonas. This story had nearly everything. It's political correctness gone mad with an added dose of self-ID scaremongering and public sector dysfunction. The only thing that was missing? First-hand evidence. The best that Burbleson could offer was hearsay and rumour. Not enough to really keep a moral panic going into week two. So the journos are stepping in to help out. In a now-deleted tweet, Helen Carroll, whose bylines can often be found at the Daily Mail, put out this request for sources. Looking to speak to a mum whose secondary school-aged child identifies as an animal, can be anonymous, and a fee paid on publication, please retweet. Hashtag journal request, hashtag PR request. As you can see, she got rid of that tweet with the quickness when people started laughing at her. This was also published by Helen Carroll online. My child identifies as an animal, fee paid on publication. This is a sensitive one, so the interviewee can remain anonymous. I'm looking to interview the mum of a secondary school-aged child who identifies as a cat or another animal. Growing numbers of children appear to be doing so, and I would like to explore some of the 
complexities of navigating this as a parent and supporting your child the best way you can. Please get in touch without obligation if you would like to discuss it further at email address, email address, email address. That to me is the epitome, the high point, the Mount Olympus of responsible journalism. You're paying parents to rat out their kids for what is essentially going to be a hit piece. And this thing about growing numbers of children appear to be adopting foursonas in schools, it's total nonsense. It's cat litter from top to bottom. There is no hard evidence that waves of children are participating in, you know, living la vida feline. Um, And in fact, I don't think there's been a single confirmed case. It's all been rumor and hearsay. There was one sixth form college, Rye College, which uh, was being accused of affirming the persona of a pupil. They've denied that any one of their students identifies as a cat. And yet, because of Kemi Badenoch, they are being slapped with a snap Ofsted inspection. And look, Helen Carroll's journal request, it's a pretty transparent attempt to add fuel to the moral panic fire and to justify the outrage by putting up some kids and some teachers as hate figures. But luckily, people have been treating this hashtag journal request with the seriousness that it deserves. Freelance journalist Sarah Woolley may have inadvertently popularized the idea of sending Helen some spoof submissions. It would be terrible if you all sent your most creative submissions to the email in the second photo, arranged a phone call, and meowed down the phone. This was shared on Twitter. Terrible indeed. Some of the responses have been pretty great. Someone sent Helen an email saying, Dear Helen, thank you so much for working on this important topic on kids identifying as animals. In my son's school, a majority of kids now identify as various animals. But the worst is one that my son came home last week and told me he now identifies as an axolotl after he apparently saw a couple of memes about them on TikTok. He made me bring a splashing pool to class and insists the teacher feeds him tadpoles. It's very embarrassing and frankly tearing our family apart. I'm happy to go on the record with my story. And here's my particular favorite for for all of you Franz Kafka heads out there. Good morning, Helen. Thank you for agreeing to talk about this incredibly important issue. I thought I was alone in this, but it is reassuring to know that there are others going through the same thing as me out there. Sadly, my son woke up one day after an uneasy sleep and started identifying as a gigantic insect. He is a 23-year-old man and held down a decent job as a cloth merchant, but this obsession is now ruining his life. He can't hold down relationships. He refuses to communicate. He drags himself around the floor. I fear sometimes I am starting to believe him. I would be happy to discuss my experiences. Look, as stupid and funny as this all is, This whole cat children thing tells you something about how the media operates. Instead of starting with facts, putting them in context and then writing a story, it's all the other way around. They've started with the story that they want, that trans and non-binary stuff has gone too far, anyone can identify as anything nowadays, it's making our kids weird and teachers are going along with it. And they're trying to cherry pick facts that suit a narrative that's already been established. This was Michelle Dubery on GB News last week. Meow. I learned something new today, everybody. It's perfectly acceptable to identify as a cat. You what? Don't you dare mock it, by the way, because I've decided that is now what I am, meow shell to you. Uh, But if you do indeed mock it, careful, because I wouldn't be surprised if it could be considered a hate crime. Self-identity, where do we draw the line? Kids at school being told that they must respect it if this is how their peers seriously want to present themselves. Really, what on earth is going on in our schools? How worried about it should we be? And why are parents not allowed to see the content that children are being taught? Very alarming, if you ask me. All of this hooting and hollering, but there's no evidence that it's even happening. Okay, Aaron, let's say that Helen Carroll or Michelle Dubery, let's say they do find a case of a furry taking further maths. Does that mean I have to eat a big bowl of humble kibble? Well, perhaps, Ash. Uh, maybe you won't be so lucky for it to be kibble. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe it'll be, uh, you know, uh, 
you might have to have a more unsavory feline <laughs> snack. Answering this more seriously, I mean, this is the thing when when pe- people say this to me on Twitter. Oh, there are people identifying as cats. Children identifying. As cats. Have you met one? Have you met? No, I know somebody who did meet one though. Or my mum said this. My dad said this. Their teachers. They're seeing it all the time. Okay, have you met one? And so somebody who has met somebody who identifies as a furry, okay, let's say this young person is hit by a car. It's not too bad, but they've just been shaken up. They've fallen off their bike. Are they seriously going to say, I need to go to a vet? No, I want to go to a hospital. When they, when they have a, a health issue, they see their GP. They don't actually think they're cats and dogs, okay? It's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a playing thing, I guess. You know, kids, when I was a, a primary school, kids would have imaginary friends. This wasn't being, um, this wasn't being sort of viewed as part of a, a mental health disorder. It's just kids have imaginary friends. Uh, you know, I remember being in uh, my grammar school and there was a young guy. I hope if you're watching Thomas, I uh, hope you're well. He, he used to think he was Cindy Lauper. Okay. He used to give performances <laughs> to people at lunchtime, singing into his hairbrush. You know, again, this wasn't pathologized as some sick. I mean, maybe it should have been. I don't know. He seemed okay apart from that. What do you mean apart from that? Thomas sounds like a legend. And Thomas, if you're out there, I want to hear your Cindy Lauper. I want to hear it. I don't. Yeah, I don't think he actually believed he was Cindy Lauper. He would say, "I'm Cindy Lauper." I don't think he believed he was Cindy Lauper. Right? It's like these kids. I'm saying I'm a cat. If they if they get really sick, they want to go see a doctor. They don't want to go to the vet. Right? They've got the NHS. They don't need you know a pet plan. I'm sure they don't seriously believe that. You know, they want to buy clothes. They don't go out saying, oh God, where's my collar and my bell? They don't start trying to attack birds when they see them. So it's an interesting kind of intraspecies performance, perhaps. Look, I'm not that au fait with it, but it's also just not that, it's just not that big a deal. And I think the real political aspect of this is, Ash, as, you, as you've hinted at or overtly said, is this kind of elision between, oh, some people suffer gender dysphoria or experience gender dysphoria, um, and they don't really identify with the gender they've been assigned at birth. And this is somehow the same as somebody who thinks they're a turtus. Or, uh, uh, or in the words of uh, Catherine Burbal Singh, uh, she knows of a young boy who identifies as a gay male hologram. <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> are you talking about? <laughs> so uh, there's a few issues going on here. Uh, we might talk about, you know, the the... the the nature of changing identities in the 21st century. Perhaps uh, there's something that's interesting about that. But the idea that's somehow the same as people experiencing gender dysphoria or, you know, perhaps just being curious about their sexuality and gender, uh, very, very strange. And and I think the right always do this. The conservatives, the sort of social conservatives always do this, particularly in America, which is they'll start sometimes with with a point which you might not think is reasonable, but at least you can debate it. They would say, look, we don't think there should be sex education for children below a certain age. Okay? You can agree or disagree. They start there, and then they end up in these absolutely zany, insane, conspiratorial places where they'll say that, you know, whole schools of children identify as giraffes. Right? And And I think kind of you're discrediting your own initial point and your own initial perspective. Okay, you can probably have a social conversation around: Should we ban iPhones in schools? Should we ban smartphones? Should they be able to access social media? Should we teach them certain things in schools and not teach certain things in schools? You know, again, you might disagree with certain positions on that, but that's clearly that's part of a broader social debate. But they inevitably end up in the most outlandish fairy tale parts of the human psyche, and I think that says something about their their political vision, because I think if you're a reactionary in the 21st century you probably recognize that you, you can't go back, right? So you just, you sort of, you, you end up in this very sort of deranged, constant clawing, how ironic I've used that, that verb, constant clawing at modernity itself. And, and I think precisely because they can't comprehend it, they have to just generate these, these strange and actually quite amusing fantasies. I will say this, I've recently moved to a new place and it backs onto a primary school. And I did hear, as you do, you hear children playing at lunchtime and break time. I did hear people yelling, meow, meow today. And I laughed to myself. I was like, either you've been watching GB News or this is just a phenomenal coincidence. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. 
For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.